Hello and welcome to the Backtracker History Show podcast with me, Alice. Join me as I go delving through the archives to find out more about the people, places and events from the past. Listen to tales of dastardly pirates and amazing innovators, catastrophic accidents and devious crimes. This podcast has it all. And this episode is no exception. So get ready to give your ears a treat and maybe learn a few things on the way. As I don't believe in sanitising the facts of history, these episodes may contain information that some people find disturbing. A majority of today's tale occurs in the year 1777, which happens to be right at the heart of the American Civil War. Here are a few of the things that were occurring that year. On the 3rd of January, American General George Washington defeats British General Charles Cornwallis at the Battle of Princeton. On June the 14th, the Stars and Stripes is adopted by the Continental Congress as the flag of the United States. On August the 22nd, the siege of Fort Stanwix is ended by withdrawal of British forces following a ruse by Benedict Arnold to persuade them that a much larger force is arriving. And on November the 15th, after 16 months of debate, the Continental Congress approves the Articles of Confederation in a temporary American capital at York, Pennsylvania. And on December the 24th, the third voyage of James Cook, the famed English explorer, he locates Christmas Island. But we'll be talking about another James, James Aitken, who was born in Edinburgh in September 1752, although his name might actually have been John, but it's generally thought that it was originally James. His father, George, was a blacksmith, or possibly a whitesmith, someone who worked with softer metals like tin, and George and his wife, Magdalene, had 12 children, of which James was the eighth. When George died sometime in the 1750s, Magdalene was left unable to support her family. Luckily for James, a man named George Herriot, a court goldsmith to James VI, had set up a charity in Edinburgh specifically to support boys like him. And so, in 1628, construction began on Herriot's Hospital. At the time, schools like this were called hospitals. But construction for this particular one was interrupted by the outbreak of the Civil War, and the school was commandeered as a barracks. It finally opened its doors in 1659, and James would have been one of the first pupils to enrol. Like many schools of its day, it combined a punishing study schedule with religious devotions designed to shape young minds towards living a good life. And it's pretty fair to say that this didn't actually work on James. But the school did their best, providing him with an apprenticeship in a trade, house painting. However, this was a poor choice of job for James, given that the house painting market was overfull and underworked. So he was forced to leave Edinburgh and seek his fortune elsewhere. The first criminal trade that James took up was highway robbery. 
He was successful in making some money from holding up and robbing carriages, but soon found that he was attracting a lot more attention than he'd have liked. Posters describing him and advertising his capture led him to look into emigrating to Virginia, America, at the age of 21. Lacking the funds to travel there himself, he signed himself into an indenture for £24 to be paid in cash or service. James's indenture was sold to a man in Virginia, but he had no intention of staying there and working it off, and soon he was on the run up north through Maryland and eventually made his way to New York via Philadelphia. He claims to have headed to Boston when he heard about the riots there and to have taken part in the Boston Tea Party, but this seems unlikely, especially so because when he found out that Britain was going to send troops to the American colonies to pacify them, his first response was to get on the boat out there and come back to England. Word of the week. And this week I am proud to give you the word... Hard tack which is a type of dense biscuit or cracker made from flour, water and sometimes salt. It's inexpensive and long-lasting and was used for sustenance in the absence of perishable foods, commonly during long sea voyages, land migrations and military campaigns. Along with pork salt, hardtack was a standard ration for many militaries and navvies during the 17th through the early 20th centuries. During the American Civil War, Three-by-three-inch hardtack was shipped from Union and Confederate storehouses. Civil War soldiers generally found their rations to be unappealing and joked about the poor quality of the hardtack in the satirical song Hardtack Come Along No More. The song was sung to the tune of the Stephen Foster song Hard Times Come Again No More and featured lyrics describing the hardtack rations as being old and very wormy and causing many stomachs sore. John Billings, a soldier in the 10th Massachusetts Battery, outlines many details on how hardtack was utilised during the war in his book, Hardtack and Coffee. And so, in 1775, without a penny to his name, James landed in Liverpool. But he earned himself some travelling money by signing up with an army recruiter, and then deserting shortly after he got his signing bonus. He made his way down to Birmingham, where he got a painting job, but he found that honest work was no longer to his taste. So instead, he robbed some shops, burgled some houses, robbed someone on the road, and even pulled the army recruitment scam again. By the time he made it down to London, he was comfortably flush and ready to hit the town. And so, today's villain, James Aitken, spent four months in London, where he... ...got into connection with some of the women of the town. In order to keep up this connection, he committed several more robberies and burglaries around London. And by doing so, he was getting himself quite the name, and the authorities were looking for him again. And so he fled the city for Cambridge this time. After robbing his way through several other counties... He enlisted with the 32nd Regiment in Gravesend and marched to Chatham. But true to form, he absconded once again. 
Although he had successfully thrown off any pursuers his crimes might have put on his trail. You might be interested to know that a lot of the details about James Aitken's life comes from an autobiography. So does a rather charming detail that after he deserted the regiment and continued his rampage, his crimes included the rape of a shepherdess he met near Basingstoke. I made my way through Winchester to Basingstoke, intending to return to London. Going over a down near Basingstoke, I saw a girl watching some sheep, upon whom was some threats and imprecations. I committed a rape, to my shame, it be said. When James got to Oxford, he had a conversation that changed the course of his life. He got into discussion about the American Civil War, and found that one point that everyone agreed on was that the British shipyards were utterly vital to the war effort. This gave James an idea. He saw a way to gain the glory and fame that he thought he truly deserved. After visiting several of the shipyards, through finding work painting the buildings there, James was sure that he could cause serious damage by attacking them. First though, he wanted to talk things through with an American contact to make sure they knew who would be responsible. Getting passage to America to get backing for his scheme was out of the question, but his other option was more doable. All he needed to do was to get to Paris. There he would find Silas Dean, an American-born son of a blacksmith who was able to win a scholarship to Yale and become a successful lawyer. Two marriages to two wealthy widows made him a man of means, leading to his election to the Connecticut House of Representatives in 1768. He was one of their delegates to the Continental Congress, which led to him being sent to Paris in March of 1776 to begin secret negotiations with the French. James's account tells how he spent time tracking down Silas, an American, before he approached him as he was passing across the Pont Neuf Bridge. A meeting was arranged where James claimed to own a plantation in America and that he was trying to get back to take part in the war but had been unable to get passage. This is when he explained his cunning plan of debilitating arson attacks on the major dockyards in England and produced some sketches that he had made of the yards. Silas was dubious, pointing out several flaws in the scheme. The biggest was of James getting caught, and any blowback if it came out that America had backed this scheme. Still, he asked him to leave the plans and return the next morning. The next day, James explained how he intended to avoid being caught setting the fires by using a simple form of firebomb, consisting of a candle in a tin box with a base filled with tinder. James would later claim that Silas was blown away by the ingenuity of his primitive device and promised all the assistance that he could offer. This consisted of a small amount of money, a promise of a commission in the American army and a contact in London. Silas would later claim that he was humouring a man he thought was a crank. It might be true that he gave him the address of Edward Bancroft in London as James did visit Bancroft later. What Silas didn't know is that Bancroft, one of his former pupils, had been flipped by the British Intelligence Service several months earlier. He would not be helping James. 
And so James Aitken arrived in the city of Portsmouth in December 1776 with his firebombs and other gear in hand. He also picked up some pistols in London, just in case anything unexpected happened. After securing lodgings in a wooden house which he planned to set ablaze as a distraction, he headed to the yards and set about preparing his fires. One of his devices he set up in the hemp storage barn, dousing the area around it with turpentine. He didn't light it yet, though, as he hoped to set another fire somewhere else in the yard. By the time he'd finished setting that up, though, he realised he'd made a critical error. He'd stayed too late, and the gates were now locked. Luckily for James, he was able to attract someone's attention without attracting their suspicion, and they let him out of the compound. He made his way back to his lodgings, where he tried to set up a diversionary fire as he had planned. But the landlady caught him in the act of testing his fuses, sheets of rolled paper coated in a mix of charcoal and gunpowder, and he was evicted from the premises. Deciding that discretion was a better course, he found a new guest house on the edge of town and headed back to the yard as soon as he could. He lit the candle on his firebomb, which it later turned out didn't work, as well as a backup fire with a gunpowder fuse in the storeroom for ropes. Then he fled. By now, James was a paranoid wreck due to the fact that so many things had gone wrong. He is worried, would his original landlady report him to the authorities? Would his devices actually work or would someone find them before they did their job? And as he'd run out of the yard, he thought someone recognised him. And so, to get away as quickly as possible, he abandoned the luggage he had left at his guest house. Instead, he took a lift with a wagon headed to Petersfield. But when they stopped to water the horses, he looked back and saw the flames at the docks. In a panic, he left the wagon and ran down the road. Under the cover of darkness, he tried to hail a passing carriage, but when it didn't stop, he fired one of his pistols at it, out of temper. Eventually, though, he did make his way to London. The rope house burned to the ground, destroying all of its contents. But thanks to the efforts of the fire brigade and a lucky wind, the flames didn't spread to any other buildings. It still burned, though, for six hours, and a ship full of gunpowder in the port was put out to sea in case a stray spark sent it up. Such a sudden fire was suspicious, of course, but the initial investigation concluded that it was accidental. Despite the fact that the damage to the port was nowhere near as much as he'd imagined, James was convinced he had struck a great blow and won a great victory. Buoyed by this, he went to see his contact in London, Edward Bancroft, who was very dismissive and told him in no uncertain terms that he would have nothing to do with this scheme and was utterly horrified by this vagabond with tales of treachery. Paranoid that Bancroft would turn him into the authorities, James left London and hurried to Plymouth. James made his way to Plymouth via Bristol, where he rebuilt his finances by finding work as a painter and then robbing his employers. With his purse refilled, he headed on, but things were not as easy as he had hoped. Plymouth Dock was, 
as it is today, one of the biggest naval bases in Britain, and a blow there might have had the results James had hoped for. However, because of its size, security there was so much tighter than at Portsmouth, and due to the recent fire at Portsmouth, the restrictions in Plymouth were so much more stringent, so going in the front gates was not an option. Instead, James managed to scale the wall with the aid of a rope ladder and grappling hook, but found the guard within as alert as the guards outside so he was forced to move on, or rather back, to his alternative target, Bristol. <laughs> Word on the street. This week we travel to The Hard, in an area of Portsmouth known as Portsea, which was originally known as Portsmouth Common. It is thought that the hard came to be named due to the clay that was deposited on the coastline at low tide, which was rolled and dried until hard, in order to create a slipway. The hard is now the location of Portsmouth Harbour Railway Station, a bus station, the pier for White Link's Isle of Wight foot ferry, and the pier for the Gosport ferry, as well as a taxi rank. It's also on the doorstep of the shopping area called Gunworth Keys, as well as Portsmouth Historic Dockyard and South Sea. And so, in the middle of January 1777, James arrived in Bristol, determined to set a fire that would destroy the whole town. He targeted three ships in the harbour, as well as a warehouse full of oil and combustible spirits. But only one of the ships actually burned, while the owner of the warehouse realised there had been a break-in and found the firebomb while checking to see if anything had been stolen. Annoyed by this, James made several more attempts to set fires among the warehouses, with some success but not quite as much as he'd hoped. He did succeed in riling the town up enough that he had to move on. And all the while, James wasn't aware that the firebomb he had placed in Portsmouth which had failed to ignite, had been discovered. So now the British were aware they had saboteurs targeting their shipyards who were now on high alert, though they had no idea it was just one man. Several other totally unrelated fires were put to his credit, leading to an assumption that a whole gang must be involved. And due to James's rather hasty exit from Portsmouth, they had a description of him where he was labelled John the Painter, and a reward of £2,000 was offered for his capture. The second firebomb being found in Bristol put the whole country on alert. Guards were set at every port, and strangers everywhere were under close watch. So James decided that he had done enough. He'd managed to mess with the minds of the military in Britain, and he was going to flee to Paris but he was short of funds and committed one more burglary to get money to escape with. Unfortunately, he made the mistake of robbing a man named Lowe, who had read the description of the arsonist of England. When his wife told him about someone she had seen casing the shop, he made the connection and immediately set out in pursuit. With the aid of a jailer named Dolby, Lowe managed to capture James in the town of Oldham, John the Painter's reign of terror was now over. 
James admitted to the burglary he was charged with almost immediately. There was too much evidence against him to do otherwise. Despite his guilty plea, the infamously stringent English legal system, known as the Bloody Code, meant that he was still going to receive a death sentence. The English legal system was called the Bloody Code because of the huge numbers of crimes for which a death penalty could be imposed. It would seem as if every crime was punishable by death in the 1800s, even those which we would consider to be very minor or trivial today, such as stealing a rabbit. And so, the number of crimes carrying the death penalty in 1688 was 50. By 1815, it was 215. James was given a plain death sentence, though, with the possibility of a pardon for taking religion. So, if he declared that he had found religion and recanted his sins, he could escape the death sentence for lesser crimes like this, but it only worked once, and you were branded to stop you doing it again. His crime of treason had no such escape route. It's not surprising that he denied any connection with the harbour fires. The authorities were eager to convict him, being able to show that a single lone lunatic had been responsible for the crimes would be a major morale boost, since the public were convinced an entire gang of saboteurs were on the loose. They couldn't torture a confession out of him, as it would be inadmissible under English law. In the end, they did manage to convict him, thanks to an American painter named John Baldwin. Baldwin was a pensioner of one of the lords investigating the affair. Initially, they hoped that Baldwin might recognise James from his time in America and be able to link him to some exploit over there, so they put them together in a waiting room. Neither had met before, but James struck up a conversation with him. They found some acquaintances in common, and James asked the former American to visit him in prison. Baldwin agreed. With the encouragement of his patron, Baldwin became a regular visitor to James in prison. Over the course of the next week, he managed to convince James of his revolutionary sympathies, and eventually... James began to confide in him, first about his important friend Silas Dean, and then about the important mission Silas had given him. Soon, the entire plot was exposed, and then James was doomed. The confession to Baldwin might have been legally dubious, but it contained enough verifiable details that they were able to use to gather plenty of evidence against James. For example the luggage he left in Portsmouth. This included his French passport, as well as other evidence. The craftsman who had made the canisters for his firebobs were soon identified and was horrified to find out what they'd been used for. And so all of this led to a final examination on February the 24th, where all of the evidence was put in front of James, and he couldn't really dispute it. And so the next day he left London for trial at Winchester. The only charge against James was burning the rope warehouse at Portsmouth Docks. This was why Dolby and Lowe never got their £2,000 reward for capturing James. Can you believe the government managed to cheat them out of it by only prosecuting him for a crime that hadn't been tied to the reward? 
Anyway, they had more than enough evidence and witnesses to prove his guilt, and so they made the trial into a show. Even James played to the crowd himself, and once it became clear that his one tactic of disputing Baldwin's evidence wouldn't be enough, he seemed to have accepted his fate, and was found guilty after only a single day of trial. The night after his conviction, James gave his confession. This was his final chance at the fame he thought he deserved. Three days later, though, his sentence was carried out. James was put on a cart and taken past the ruins of the Portsmouth warehouse he had torched and then taken to the gallows outside of town. 20,000 people had gathered to watch him die, though no record of his final speech remains. Then he was hanged from the mast of a ship, which had been taken and erected at the harbour gate as a makeshift gallows. It was so tall, over 64 feet, that he had to be lifted up to it by a pulley. After he died, his corpse was put into a gibbet cage to be publicly displayed in the harbour for the next few years. Upon our arrival, I did behold a most curious sight, which gave me further cause to wonder about the true safety we might here enjoy. Above the entrance to the harbour of this town there stands upon the gibbet a most piteous set of remains, being the last mortal pieces of a most heinous criminal lately caught in these parts. He was known as Jack the Painter, and upon declaring his attachment to the violent cause of rebellion in America that we have just escaped, he did undertake to commit acts of destruction upon these shores. He succeeded only in firing the rope house at the Royal Navy's great shipyards here, but even that caused a great deal of disruption and upset in these parts. It comes as small comfort to my distressed mind that he was captured in due course and brought to a swift and certain end. His corpse left to dangle here as a visible warning to all who might conceive of a misplaced notion to follow in his example. James entered the history books even though his plan didn't go as well as he expected because he was possibly the first person to carry out a successful terror attack in the British Isles. Though Guy Fawkes and his associates are generally held to be the first terrorists executed in Britain, they failed to carry out their objective. Light the candles, get yourself a fresh cup of something hot or a glass of something chilled and settle back to enjoy a selection of 100% spoiler-free book reviews. Whether you're a fan of cosy mysteries, horror, romantic comedies, science fiction or anything else you might find on the bookcase, Being Bookish is a great place to start. Join me, your host Ray, as I take a joyride through the books on my bookshelves and journey into new territories with recommendations every week. You may even hear a few interviews with authors along the way. Find every episode of Being Bookish wherever you find your podcasts. In the news today, boffins in Bristol have discovered what really makes people throw up. Turns out it's a dartboard on a ceiling.
Back in the day facts. Let's start with the 22nd of April 1969, when British yachtsman Sir Robin Knox Johnston wins the Sunday Times Golden Globe race and completes the first solo, non-stop circumnavigation of the world. The 23rd of April 1927 and Cardiff City defeat Arsenal in the FA Cup final, the only time it has been won by a team not based in England. Also on the 23rd of April, but in 1965, I Can't Help Myself, Sugar Pie Honey Bunch, was released by the Four Tops and is one of the most well-known Motown recordings of the 1960s and among the decade's biggest hits. The 24th of April 1916 saw the Easter Rising. Irish rebels led by Patrick Purse and James Connolly launch an uprising in Dublin against British rule and proclaim an Irish Republic. On the 25th of April 1792, highwayman Nicholas J. Peltier becomes the first person executed by guillotine. The 26th of April 1962, the British space programme launches its first satellite, the Ariel 1. On the 27th of April in 1840, the foundation stone for the new Palace of Westminster in London was laid by Sarah Barry wife of its architect, Charles Barry. And lastly, on the 29th of April, 1587, English naval officer Francis Drake sails into Cadiz, Spain, and sinks the Spanish fleet, thereby singeing the King of Spain's beard and delaying the Spanish invasion by a year. Well, I fear, folks, that's the end of today's episode and I hope you found it as interesting as I did. And as always, I'd like to thank those that really brought today's story to life. And today we have Molly Jeffries and Joe Wilson, both from St. Stephen's Drama Group, right here in Bristol. Thank you, one and all. Thank you once again for listening to me, Alice on the Backtracker History Show. If you'd like to get in touch with me, you can find me on Twitter or Facebook by looking up at Backtracker UK with a capital B, a capital T and a capital UK. I also occasionally post onto TikTok and Instagram. So do come along and find me because it's amazing to hear from you and get some feedback or even ideas for future shows. As a small independent podcaster, Your help and support is always appreciated. And one way you can do that is to rate the show wherever you get your podcasts. Leaving a review also helps as it gives other people an idea of what the show's about. The show is regularly released on Mondays. So until next time, guys, take care and look after each other. (laughs) 